Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm delighted to share a session from the DFARM 2018 conference in which Roche's Dr. Christian Gossens provides an update on their progress in collecting data with sensor technology and turning it into a clinically meaningful endpoint with multiple indications, including Parkinson's and MS. When you have a chance, check out our speakers from DFARM 2019, which is taking place September 17th and 18th in Boston. DFARM is an innovation event specializing in clinical trials. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, before you are free to get your ice cream and your coffee, uh, I hope you're going to enjoy this little talk. Um, lots of things we've heard today, I think, really outstanding and still, they had sometimes a little bit of the flavor like, oh, I've seen that before. And let me connect this to something that is inspiring me a lot, and that is science fiction. I don't know who recognizes immediately this starship. Yes, it's Star Trek, exactly. 1966 it was when this was born, right? And then, after three years, it was gone again. So, uh, fortunately, lots of the things that were, if you want so, invented in that series, uh, did make it, though, into practice. And now let's see how we can bring this into clinical practice. So for example, you see here some uh, spatial uh, equipment that allowed you to communicate through space from a spaceship, from a planet to another one, um, a handheld device. And there were all these nice, nice touch screens that you could use already at that time to navigate that spaceship. And, um, Nowadays, we see very many women here in this room, but at that time, I can assure you, uh, for those of you who were not yet born there, uh, definitely kind of that was not normal that women were kind of uh, um, captaining these, these spaceships. Um, actually, the normal telephone at that time looked a little, little bit like the uh, device on the left-hand side, the, the grayish one, and then it took about half a century for technology to evolve to the point where we finally have now our smartphones, as you can see them on the right. Well then, to make the point, uh, nowadays even pets like this cat here are chasing mice on a tablet, right? So virtual reality is really there. Good, but now become serious again. So if we look into what these fantastic smart devices do all have embedded, embedded in, in their uh, technology are um, amazing variety of sensors. And those sensors, of course, we can use, like we have mainly discussed today, we can use them to do things in a digital way that we can do today already. But what I want to emphasize is that these sensors also allow you to do really digital science. And I think that is really a point I want to get across today, that there's something new really growing um, through these sensors that allows you to do things that were never possible before. So for example, if you take magnetometers, gyroscopes, accelerometers, right? Yes, you can use them, for example, to keep the, um, the image on your screen uh, frozen while you walk so that it doesn't rotate. But also kind of you can do real science with it, and I'm gonna to come to this in a second, because you can collect that data, process it, analyze it, and augment the clinical picture you have of your patients. 
So at Roche, we started doing that in 2014. Then in February 2015, we rolled out our first clinical trial in which we had a bespoke Samsung smartphone uh, provided to the patients. And actually, just a couple of months later, um, the research kit on iOS came out. So I think um, it was really just the time that was, uh, was, was, was fine to, to kind of yeah, create all this um, innovative um, innovation in that space. And then at Roche, kind of we built on that first success there um, in Parkinson's and did create something for multiple sclerosis. And not only kind of we moved from the S3 Mini to something more modern, the S7, but we also kind of uh, combined the uh, smartphone with a smartwatch. So we had also then sensors placed on the wrist of the individuals. Since the insights from phase one in Parkinson's were so encouraging, we also then went forward and embedded this in a more advanced version in our phase two clinical trial uh, called Pasadena. And then we moved on to also include uh, the same um, approaches into spinal muscular atrophy, where we had, of course, to design the active test a little bit more for, for um, a younger um, audience, uh, kids, and then uh, also in, in Huntington's. So three elements, though, are key whenever you do such an approach. The first one is you need to design something that is easy for patients so they actually are willing to use it and are adherent. The second thing is you need to show, of course, that it does make sense, right? It doesn't help you if you have something glossy, shiny, sexy in it. You really want to do something scientifically meaningful. That means like it needs to correlate somehow or at least exceeds, I would say, what you do today in terms of your clinical scales. And then ultimately, um, you, you are really into what else is there, right? Isn't there anything that you can't measure today at all that you would kind of like to capture there. And I'm going to show you a couple of examples. But just really since there's a myth in, in the field saying like kind of, you know, patients won't, won't do this over time. Here you see real adherence data from a, a DMS um, first trial that we did. And it's really out of the, the trials we have seen so far. It's, it's an average. We have seen better. We have slightly seen slightly worse. But the, out of the active tests that we asked the patients to do, between four and five out of seven days, patients were conducting them and uh, being compliant. And for the passive monitoring, meaning like carrying around these devices as we asked them, you see that for the uh, smartwatch, obviously we had slightly uh, better um, usage hours, roughly between, let's say, seven and, and eight. Um, and for the smartphone, still reasonable between five and, and seven hours. So it gives us a wealth of information that we can then mine. And here you see, for example, one um, measurement that we did with the Parkinson's patients. So we asked them to uh, keep their smartphone on their lap and count down from 100 to distract them slightly. And then we measured with the smartphone their, their shivering, right? Um, and compared that to what the physician had seen during that 10-minute visit that the patient normally then had with them in the clinic and rated them here according to the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. And you see overall, you see a nice correlation. That's great. That's kind of the anchor. But actually, if you look more into detail, you see very interesting things. For example, if you look at to this column where the physicians have rated, they have not seen tremor, rest tremor during this very short period observation time that they had with the patient. However, our sensors indicated substantial amount of patients actually do show rest tremor, at least over this extended two-week period that we summarized there. 
it's now a little bit unfair. Of course, we had much more data than the poor physician who only saw the patient these 10 minutes, right? But that's the power and the beauty of that technology. You can do the test every day at home. And here you see the evidence that essentially the, that this is not an outlier, that the technology was weird or going wrong. The healthy controls that you can see on the left-hand side, they don't show these, these outliers, right? So obviously what we measured there was, was real rest tremor that was missed by the physician. And now imagine you need to develop an experimental drug against such scales. Well, you have so much noise, it's difficult to find actually the signal. Right? So the hope is really that we can develop these assessments now further and drive them through regulatory acceptance. Because also another point you see there is that the, uh, the means of the two cohorts, the, the one where the physician felt like no rest tremor and the, the healthy controls are substantially different. According to the baseline assessment, they should be equal, of course, right? So you see that the physician assessment for those, no, I haven't seen any rest tremor, and the healthy controls, age-matched, they are not the same. Good. Now let's switch gears. I mentioned to you that besides all these active tests, we also do substantial passive monitoring. And so here you see Florian, a colleague from uh, my department from data science, uh, walking up and down the corridor to generate here some gyration and acceleration signal uh, sensors. And the big question is, what does that tell you? Right. In the beginning, we collected that data, hoping we could make sense out of it. But what is that sense? So fortunately, um, we had reference data already generated in the public domain that illustrated where well, people essentially were keeping track minute by minute what they were doing. Now I'm walking, now I'm sitting, now I'm resting, right? And so we could kind of train our uh, human activity recognition model uh, with this and then applying machine learning on a high-performance computing environment. And then within an hour and a half, we could crunch 1.2 terabyte of data, and that was the totality of the passive monitoring data that we were collecting out of this um, cohort in, in Parkinson's disease, and we could classify what these patients were really doing. And so, for example, we found out that um, the, the healthy control population um, is substantially more active than the uh, Parkinson's um, um, group um, when you look into sit-to-stand transition clearly indicating that the quality of life is impacted by your Parkinson's disease, as we know, right? But here you can now measure it, and you can quantify it by clearly showing that the Parkinson's patients do not stand up as frequently anymore as healthy controls if their disease is progressing. Now, of course, if you can find such a signal in your drug and see this improving, bingo, you are there, right? Good. Now, let's do a quick deep dive into multiple sclerosis. And let's call that young lady here Sarah. Um, and the, the idea behind this image is really that the spotlights are on Sarah's face here, right? And so you can see her nicely, while the background you can hardly see because you don't, you don't have spotlights there. And it's lots of measurement points that actually help us better understand how the patient is doing in the real world outside of our kind of observed clinical trial setups. The classical standard, if we want to come back to that term, 
um, for MS is very often still the nine-hole pack test. So the patient is asked to, to take the, uh, the pins out of the holes into a well and then back again, and the time is taken. That's actually a digital device there. And nobody is questioning that this digital device is working. That's interesting, because whenever you do this when the, with a the smartphone, people ask you, are you sure it really measures correctly? Nobody is questioning whether the stopwatch is, is working fine. Good. Um, so we designed a, a test suite here for cognition, hand, arm, and gait, and posture, so more motor functions. Uh, we also measure in the clinic. We ask patients uh, their daily experience questions and, and symptoms. And then, again, we did passive monitoring, as I mentioned to you. And here now you see one particular test, and this is this pinch test, where essentially we are mimicking the nine-hole pack test and uh, let the patient squeeze tomatoes, right? And now you can look at two very different things. Well, first of all, you see here also the watch. Um, so we know where the wrist is in space compared to the screen. So we have two set, uh, sets of, of sensors there. And we can collect the amount of uh, tomatoes squeezed as well as uh, the time in between those squeezes. And here you see the visualization of it. So on the left-hand side, you see healthy controls. Right-hand side, the most severe um, MS patient. And the, um, the, the time, the mean time between two consecutive um, attempts to, to squeeze a tomato um, is significantly kind of going up towards the more severely impacted patients. But also the total amount of successful pinching um, efforts is substantially higher for a healthy control than for an S patient. And these are nicely correlating actually with the nine hole pack test times. The nice thing is this test you can ask patients to do at home every day. You know, it's just 15 seconds and they are, they are done. Good. So here clearly you can also see the stats on the left hand side healthy controls doing much better than on the right hand side those patients that show um, uh, or that are above the threshold of MS, which is perceived at 24 seconds. Um, the interesting thing is, of course, you also see shades of gray in between, right? So we see already here MS patients that um, are still doing the test, the nine-hole pack test, in less than 24 seconds. Uh, but however, they don't do this as well anymore as the healthy controls. Now, we took the MS test suite um, in a slightly reduced version and took it public. So there's now an open access trial started earlier this year in, uh, I guess, uh, in April it was. Um, so Floodlight Open was launched. If you go to floodlightopen.com, you can enroll into this clinical trial. Um, you, can kind of, you can provide informed consent, you can download the app, and you can donate that data to the MS community. So that data is going to be shared with the entire scientific community because there's nothing proprietary in that. We really want to encourage the uh, society here to, uh, to adjust to these uh, assessments and, and, and try it out and learn from it. The next thing that we just uh, announced last week is essentially this collaboration here with Michael J. Fox and Parkinson's, where we're going to equip a sub-cohort of the um, Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative trial that is ongoing with our assessment suite. Um, and this is going to start very soon. I'm very much looking forward to it because here again, it is around building these robust sets of outcome measures that we as a community need to do. Roche can't do this on our own. Uh, we need really to work as a community there together. And therefore, again, data going to be shared. Last but not least, I really, really want to emphasize that the FDA is actively encouraging us as an industry to work towards these goals. Scott Gottlieb clearly said in April earlier this year that they are working on digital biomarkers, that they really realize that the 
ubiquitous smart devices that are around are encouraging, that they believe they're going to be kind of helpful to um, measure progression of, uh, of disease um, and also, of course, the effectiveness of treatments. And they clearly fledged out that they are working now on a more clear policy because they realized their existing ones are not covering this, obviously. So they are really working on this to make these true, as they say, bake it into drug development programs. Thank you very much for the intention and very happy to follow up with you afterwards. We hope you enjoyed the podcast from DFARM 2018. DFARM 2019 takes place September 17th and 18th in Boston, with a full day dedicated to mobile and R&D on September 16th. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.